Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. God is indeed good. He is faithful to us, and that prompts us to confess our sins because we remember we are not good. We are not faithful, though he has been. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians 10 for the call to confession this morning. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. Drink, For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Thus far the reading of God's word. Today we have a special service. We are baptizing four children and receiving a family into membership here at Christ Church. In the CREC, we like to go to this passage in 1 Corinthians 10 to point out that the Old Testament pattern still holds for us in the New Testament. We are baptized, we eat and drink of Christ, Old Testament or New Testament. And that's true. But the main point of the text is a warning against covenant presumption. The main point is just because you're baptized, just because you come to church every week, just because you take communion regularly, don't assume that you're all set with God. Lots of Israelites with Moses had the sacraments. We like to argue that point, and it's true. But the bigger issue is that they fell dead in the desert due to unbelief anyway. It's very easy to drive along the highway to see a road sign for paradise straight ahead, to celebrate at the sign. That sign is baptism. That sign is communion, the sacraments. But then it's easy five minutes later to see the sign for Sin City and take a right turn. Our church attendance cannot make up for our sins against God. Our right theology cannot atone for our guilt. Only Jesus saves at the cross, at the empty tomb. Put your trust in him and in his work there. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. Let's kneel if we are able, and I'll pray our prayer of confession today. have opened before us. This is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And as the psalmist prays, uh, in your light may we see light. May we walk in the light. 
Help us to expose the darkness within ourselves and around us. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Romans 6, the first 11 verses. Hear God's word. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but this word of God stands forever. And God's people said, Amen. Well, my plan in this message is, again, a bit unconventional like it was last week. Um, uh, with the baptisms today and receiving a family into membership, what I, my intent is, is instead of doing a separate sermon and then coming to that membership and baptism and explaining th- that portion, I would just take the sermon to do the explanation. So that's the idea here. So you see that in the, the bulletin outline. The, the questions are meant to address those things that we usually... Uh, consider the explanation of baptism and membership. I may have bitten off a bit more than I can chew. Each one of those points is really a sermon in itself. So this will still be a a brief explanation of each of these four. So let's uh, dive right in then. And and we'll be looking at Romans 6 uh, uh, in depth here as well uh, as it deals directly with this. So what is baptism? Let's start out with that. And a basic question, uh, a basic kind of common sense answer first. Baptism acts out a change of identity that has happened or that's going to happen. Baptism acts out a change of identity. When Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10 that Israel was baptized into Moses in the Red Sea, he's pointing to the change, right? Israel was in Egypt in bondage. Now they're free in the desert. God freed them. They passed over from one state to another. Romans 6 makes the same kind of point. We can't keep on sinning like before. We've been baptized. You point to the baptism because there's been a change of identity. That's the key. Now, this is true for adult converts, obviously. Sometimes it's harder for us to see when we baptize infants, but it's there too. All of us are born tainted with a sinful nature. Everyone needs to be washed, needs to be changed, needs to be washed clean. Uh, from that uh, point. Sometimes we can tell when God makes the change, right? We, we call that conversion. Uh, it's, it's also, we, as when we talk about what God is doing, he's, he's regenerating us. Sometimes we can't tell quite so clearly, but the point is that baptism acts out the change of identity. 
Probably the best illustration of this is the one that God himself uses in the Bible, and that is adoption. When we're adopted, your identity changes, right? You used to be a Henderson, but now you're part of the Smith family. You used to be claimed by the devil, but now God has taken you as his own. That's the idea of uh, adoption. Baptism is a change. Now, what exactly is that change? Well, we go from being apart from Christ and guilty of sin to being in Christ and not guilty. And Romans 6 describes how this happens. We're baptized into Christ. You're always baptized into something. It's not just that you have the water put on you and and now you're something different. You're, You're in something now. Right? We are united with Christ so that when he died, we died too. When he rose to new life, so did we. God treats us as if we are Jesus. That's, that's the striking thing. And Heidelberg has said that the last couple of weeks as well. God counts Christ's death for, for sin as our death for sin. So our penalty is paid. God gives us life because we are in Jesus. And he gave Jesus new life. So God is treating us as if we are Jesus. That's, that's the mercy of imputation and, and uh, justification. So another aspect of that uh, change is cleansing. Right? We're united with Christ. One of the benefits of that is, is cleansing. We go from a state of unclean before God to clean. Now, this doesn't mean we stop sinning after our baptism. That's not the point. Uh, or it doesn't even mean that we sin less after our baptism. The point is that it shows our standing before God. It's, it's like families that do bath time on Saturday night, right? God looks at us after our Saturday night bath, and with a nod of approval, he says, yep, he's ready to be with me in church, in church tomorrow morning. God approves. God has cleansed us before him. That's the idea. Do you not know, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom. And such were some of you, but you were washed. That's the idea, baptism as cleansing. So baptism marks a change of identity. We're united with Christ. We're cleansed of our sin. One last thing to mention is the idea of marking, uh, acting out God marking us as his. Uh, Baptism is a sign pointing to union and cleansing. It isn't the union and cleansing itself. That's what sacraments are. They're signs, they're seals of God's covenant, love, and action for us. So baptism is a a marking, and we'll come back to that in the next question. So that's that's a a brief uh, bit on what baptism is, and we see uh, that in Romans 6 as well. But let's step back and think about the sacraments generally. What is happening in the sacraments? We talked about this a bit at the last discipleship meeting, which the Heidelberg's looking at sacraments. And this is always a good question to ask. I had a seminary text once, the textbook was called this. What is happening in the Lord's Supper? What's going on as we're taking the Lord's Supper? It's always good to consider that. So there's several things. One, we're keeping a command, right? Jesus told us to do this. Do this in remembrance of me. Great commission, make disciples, baptizing them, right? This is why there's only two sacraments. There are only these two things that Christ specifically told the apostles to do that bear witness of his saving acts. That, that, that's baptism and communion. So we're, we're keeping a command. That two, we're responding to God's grace. 
baptism and communion are both, partly, you saying, I believe this. I believe in Jesus. I repent of my sins. He saved me. And when we bring infants for baptism, then it's the parents who are actively bringing their children to the church, asking for baptism. So, so in baptism and communion, we're saying something to God, and we're saying something to ourselves and to the watching world. We're saying, this is for me. I believe this is true. This is real. I, I believe I need this. Uh, Lord, save me. All, all those kinds of things we're saying when we partake of the sacraments. So that's number two. But number three, more importantly, God is giving us grace. Uh, before we can get washed up, if we're uh, an infant, a toddler, someone needs to draw the bath. Somebody needs to find the soap and so on. God acted first. We just said, okay, go ahead. And, and we didn't go kicking and screaming into the bathtub. We were fine to, okay, go submit to the, to the baptism. That's the idea. God is giving us grace. Uh, I like 2 Samuel 7 to talk about that, where David becomes the king, and then David says to the prophet Nathan, hey, you know, God just has that tent, that tabernacle. I just built this nice house for myself. I'm going to build a house for God. And at first Nathan says, okay, sounds good, go ahead. But God says, no, don't do that. I'm going to build you a house first. And he gives him this great promise about how his descendants will always have someone on the throne of David, which is uh, Captain Jesus, by the way. Jesus sits on David's throne at the right hand of God right now, keeping that promise that God made to David. But what was David's response to that? It's a long one, but I'll summarize. He basically says, God, you are great and awesome. Go ahead and do it. (laughs) That's what David says. Uh, so that's what's going on here in in the sacraments God is giving us grace that's the main thing pretty much all we're doing is saying go ahead give it to me yeah so that's that's David's response that's ours so you know when we do communion when we do baptism we get all the communion elements together we bake the bread every week we know who you are thank you and I think through how to administer it up front correctly But only God really does the feeding. And that's important to keep in mind. God's giving us grace. So we usually think of this as a past event to remember. We take communion and we remember back to the cross. And it is that. That's good. But it is also so much more. That part of the grace God is giving us is strength in the present. Right? He's feeding, he's nourishing your souls now with the actual life of Christ. So when you see four children baptized in a few minutes, that should encourage you in a tangible way, right? That happened to you, too. You've been washed like Nathan. You've been cleansed like Kai. You've been received like Cyrus will be received. You've been accepted like Oliver will be accepted. Jesus loves children, too. It's important for you kids to to remember You know, sometimes you may think, I'm nine, I'm ten. I often feel like church is for older people or for other people. But no, God turns to you and he says, I love you. You are my child. So God's giving us grace in the sacraments. One of my favorite illustrations on this, I remembered uh, C.S. Lewis's Narnia uh, story, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, where nasty Eustace, 
turns into a dragon. And he's just miserable for a while. Until he meets a lion, which scares him at first. And Eustace was trying to scratch his dragon skin off. And it itched so badly. And Aslan finally says to him, you're going to have to let me undress you. And Eustace was in such pain that he just lays down and lets him. And the, the writing is excellent in this. Go, go read it once again if you, if you haven't lately. He says, he just dug into me so deep it felt like the claws went right into my heart. And he just ripped that skin away completely. Eustace couldn't get it off himself, but the lion digs so deep, he gets all of that dragony stuff off of us. That's God giving us grace. Removing the dragon parts when we can't do it. The sacraments are a sign pointing to God doing that for us. Sometimes they are actually doing it as we receive those sacraments. So in the sacraments, we're keeping a command. We're responding to God's grace. God's giving us grace. The Heidelberg talks about uh, the, the, the other uh, point I wanted to make here. Jesus is really present in the sacraments. Uh, we see that in 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, he, where he kind of rhetorically asks, isn't the, partaking of, uh, isn't the breaking of the bread a participation in the body of Christ? It, the word is a sharing, uh, a taking part in the body. Is, isn't the cup uh, sharing, taking part in, actually receiving the blood of Christ? So, there, so there's a real communion going on there. Jesus puts it really strongly in John 6. Right? He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Wow. That, that one made me think, just put it in modern terms a second. You know, it, it's kind of like at the fall in Genesis 3, there was this nuclear shock wave that totally irradiated the whole planet. And there's no life anywhere. And now, the only place you find life is where Jesus goes. And whatever he touches, kind of like Aslan again in the first story where he's uh, touching the stone statues and breathing them back to life, Right? Uh, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No life in you unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, Jesus says. And he clarifies that later. And the disciples ask, what, what is this? What kind of teaching is this? And he says later, the, the, it's the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. And we point to that, like the Heidelberg does, to say it's not the physical eating. It's not like the bread becomes the body of Jesus. That's not the case. That's the error of Rome and Lutherans too, that Jesus has to be physically present there for there to be of any benefit. No, Jesus is physically in heaven. Uh, John Calvin liked to say, we, we don't drag Christ back to earth for mass. That, that's not what we do. No, we, the, the spirit of Jesus is present everywhere and he can bless us as much as we need without having his body uh, be there with us. So Jesus is, is really present in a special way in the water and bread and wine, but it's not his, his body, his blood there. Uh, last thing on, on this one, uh, then we'll move on. What else is God doing in the sacraments? Again, he's marking us as his. Let's come back to that point. God is marking us as his. Remember that change of identity, right? God's claiming you as his, like he adopts us. And there's a distinction from the world point there we need to uh, pay attention to. Uh, many Christians don't like to focus on this distinction, but God does it throughout the whole Bible, so it's really important. In our circles today, we call it the antithesis. Uh, there, there's an opposition 
a basic contrast between those who are baptized into Christ and those who aren't. Between those who are willing to receive the Lord's Supper as often as it's given in church and those who reject it and stay away. There's a basic opposition between those who love Jesus and those who ignore or despise him. And a little commentary on that now. In our nation, we've had a good 200 years or more of the wonderful privilege of a culture that pretty much cheers on and agrees with those who love Jesus. But in the last 20 to 50 years or so, that has quickly evaporated. And the church is really reeling over that. I'm strongly convinced. It occurred to me uh, yesterday, uh, look up the five stages of grief sometimes that psychologists often refer to. You know, you go have a significant loss in your life personally, and there's kind of five stages we go through. Uh, Look through those and think of how the church is acting these days, and you'll see what I mean. We've lost something significant, and and we're reeling. Uh, So we've lost something important, a culture friendly to Christian values and thought. But that kind of culture is not necessary to us living faithfully before God. And that's something that we need to relearn. Uh, The Pentecost Christians who went home to their Roman provinces did not have a culture pulling for them at all. And yet the church grew by leaps and bounds. Today, baptism gets new converts in all kinds of big trouble in hardline Muslim areas, for example, because it marks them as loyal to Christ not to Allah. Their families sometimes kick them out. Baptism marks us as Christ's. We're distinct then from the world. And if we're his, we need to forsake the ways of the world. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he gives a big long list, 1 Corinthians six ten. And such were some of you. Now, Paul's point there, he's talking mainly to the Gentiles there in that verse when he says, some of you, because it was the Gentiles who were uh, living in this rebellious lifestyle. Jews sin too, of course, but they were trusting and loving God. They knew certain things were wrong that the Gentiles didn't think were wrong. So, the gen- so when unbelievers come to church and consider Christ, it needs to be clear that, that following Jesus means giving up and I'll just give you the list with a bit of paraphrase. It means giving up sexual immorality. Following Jesus means renouncing idols. It means naming adultery and homosexuality as sin. It means to stop being a thief, to stop being greedy and drunk, to stop being a reviler or a con man. That that word is actually in that list. Such were some of you, but you were washed. So Romans 6, our text, puts it well at the end. Because you're baptized, because you're united to Christ, consider yourself dead to sin. And if I remember rightly, uh, I didn't look it up again this week, but I've preached through this before. Uh, This is the first uh, verb in the letter of Romans that's an imperative. We're in chapter (laughs) 6. This is the first time that Paul in the book of Romans tells the Romans to do something. The whole first five and a half chapters, it's all been laying out uh, how our sin and our salvation. And what's the bottom line? What are we supposed to do about all that then? Romans 6.11. Think of yourself as dead to sin. You're dead to sins like idolatry, greed, homosexuality, whatever it is. You can't do that anymore. You're united to Jesus in baptism. 
That's Paul's basic message to the Gentile Corinthians. Now, the same thing really applies when we think of our children. We're baptizing children today, right? And there's this change of identity, right? And we can't just go along with their tendencies, right? The, the, the um, cultural moment uh, controversy is all about how there are certain things. Take homosexuality, for example. That's, the world is trying to tell everybody that that's not really a sin, even though God's word says it is a sin. So the definition of what's right and wrong is, comes into play, right? So with our kids, you've got two-year-olds, and you all, we all know about the terrible twos. So we tend to say things like, oh, it's the terrible twos, or, oh, it's the rebellious teens, that's just how it is. And so we just indulge the sin, we identify them with it. Well, they're two-year-olds. Two-year-olds are going to do what two-year-olds do. No, actually... We, instead of identifying with that sin, we need to fight it. And baptism is a stake in the ground to say, this child is God's. I am not letting sin reign in me or in this child. In baptism, God marks us as his. We're distinct from the world, how people live in their selfishness. We, we need to be. Of course, we, we sin uh, along with the rest of the world, but there's a, there's a resistance that we're offering there that isn't elsewhere. So that's what's happening in the sacraments. Five things there. Uh, what's happening is that uh, we are obeying God's command. Uh, God is marking us as his. We are uh, responding to God's grace. God is giving us grace. And Jesus is really uh, there, present, uh, in a special way. Well, quickly, on another two questions here, as we baptize infants today and as we receive the caterers and membership, why would we baptize a baby? Let's look into that a moment. And here we go to Genesis 17. And we see that God hasn't changed in how he deals with his people. Right? The externals change all along the way. Abraham had no tabernacle to worship God in. But he still had to mark his children as God's. Same pattern, even though he didn't have the tabernacle. Joshua had no temple to worship God in, but he was still to circumcise the next generation. Same pattern. David didn't know about heaven as much as we do, but he still believed his infant child was with God when he died. So when Pentecost comes along and 3,000 repent and they're baptized, the apostles realize this is a new sign of the same old thing. God's promise to claim you as his. Now, more of the plan is revealed, but it's not a different plan. That Jesus gets the plan done at the cross. That's part of the new thing revealed. And so these 3,000 at Pentecost, they go home, newly baptized, new converts. And I believe the apostles fully expect them to start churches and to baptize their children. Paul says why in Colossians 2. He says, look, if you've been baptized, you don't have to be circumcised. They both point to the same salvation in Christ. And God has given us the new sign. Well, how was the old sign done? Well, Genesis 17, when you're eight days old, because the promise is for you and for your children and for those far off, you circumcise the eight-day-old. So part of the argument for baptizing babies is if God had wanted to change that pattern and start excluding the children of believers from the covenant, he surely would have said so. 
and he didn't. So the apostles are expecting that. So that's why we bring our little ones and baptize them, because God wants us to mark them as his own. Uh, again, there's a whole sermon there, but we'll move on for today. Last, uh, as we receive a family into membership, uh, why is membership uh, so important? Uh, and here we can look at Romans 6 first and remember, and 1 Corinthians 12, and remember that baptism is initiation into the church, right? We like to say that baptism doesn't automatically save you or regenerate you, and that's true. But there is something, I believe, that baptism automatically does. It makes you a member of the visible church. Baptism initiates you into the membership. Uh, So uh, 1 Corinthians 12 says we're baptized into the body of Christ. Uh, So uh, baptism, in a sense, makes you a member. Uh, And uh, Hebrews 13, we read, uh, tells us uh, that membership in the church is really important. Why? Uh, Because you need to obey your leaders in the church. The church had leaders from the beginning, notice. And Paul calls the church to honor and to follow them, to consider their example. I like that phrase, by the way, because sometimes the example of the leaders isn't always a good one. But the verse still applies, right? It's like, consider their example and watch the outcome of how they live. And sometimes it goes a little wonky, right? And then we can learn something from that too. So that's the idea. The whole group can learn even when the leaders fall short. Uh, So uh, Hebrews 13, and I wanted to read all the verses in between because it relates. It's not just separate exhortations, right? Verse 9, I think it is, of Hebrews 13, says there's diverse and strange teachings out there. And boy, isn't that true today. The, The historical, ecumenical church can keep us grounded against various fads. Being part of a a group uh, where you're submitting to leadership in a church can help uh, prevent uh, just individuals going off into whatever they read on the internet. It's very helpful. So verse 17 too, church leaders need to give an account, it says. They're responsible to God for your spiritual condition. That's quite a statement. If, If I'm to be responsible for your spiritual condition, I need to know you are willing to respond to my questions about your spiritual condition. (laughs) That that comes with the territory, right? Uh, Some of you may know, I I do a little bit of payroll processing work on on the side, about five hours a week these days. And and, uh, I wind up paying thousands of dollars in taxes for some dentists and doctors every week. Uh, So I'm paying that to the IRS through the software that I've learned. So if those doctors would suddenly say to me, hey, I'm not telling you how much I pay my employees. That's not your business. Well, then I couldn't be responsible for them to the IRS. I I couldn't pay what they're supposed to pay. If they just said, buzz off. I don't want to deal with you anymore. You see the illustration. God has made your church leaders responsible for you. So there's certain information that needs to be provided. God has told us. Church leaders are responsible for you to God. Not in an ultimate sense. We know pastors aren't mediators for you with God. You're responsible for your own sin and such. But God does want you reporting to an earthly church authority your spiritual state. What makes you afraid? What tempts you? What trouble do you see ahead for you? What do you need to set you more at ease in your walk with the Lord? Uh, There are certain... uh, 
questions that uh, we, we can ask and answer that can be helpful in that regard. So that, these are reasons why church membership is important. It sets you in a relationship like that. Uh, verse 17, I enjoy too, Hebrews 13. Uh, give your leaders joy in their work. Uh, how do you give church leaders joy in their work? Well, there's all kinds of things. That, you know, don't groan and complain. Don't squabble amongst each other. Don't fall into the same sins over and over. These are things that, that grieve church leaders, right? Uh, as they grieve the Lord, of course, too. Uh, but uh, we want to uh, be intentional about our church membership. It's an outgrowth of being baptized into the body of Christ. And I'll close there just reminding us that baptism marks us as gods. We're united with Christ in his death and resurrection. We're cleansed by his blood. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, again, uh, with the hymn writer, we praise you that you have given us the spirit and the gifts. They are ours through him who sides with us. We thank you for that. We thank you for the time today to focus on some of those gifts, uh, baptism, the Lord's Supper, your word. Lord, what a, a rich feast you set before us uh, to enjoy, to treasure your grace and your goodness to us. We ask, Lord, as you uh, have given us so much instruction, so much encouragement, uh, that we would uh, respond appropriately, uh, that we would, in our lives, live out our new identity that you have given us. Lord, help us to set right uh, whatever is, is still uh, misaligned with your word. Uh, forgive us uh, for being slow to do so, uh, for being blind to it. Uh, Lord, uh, do that work of sanctifying us, exposing the darkness, helping us to walk in the light. For you have uh, brought us into a marvelous uh, place, uh, good standing with you, cleansed before you, that your adopted children, fed at your table, taught your word. Uh, thank you, Lord, for all doing all of this through Christ, through his work. We glorify him for all of it, and we pray in his name. And we sing as he taught us to pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C H R I S T. K-I-R-K-M-I dot com. Again, thank you and blessings.